My name is Sakusa Rokovasa Vakandewa Tambua, Jr. I go uh, by Zach, and I'm originally from the Fiji Islands. My childhood was different from what a typical kid would go through. There were no toys, uh, no video games. We'll play with sticks and uh, jack stones. Playing rugby, of course, there was no rugby ball. We'd use a Coca-Cola bottle. Sometimes it hit you in the face, and, but we'll just carry on. The day when I received my shoebox, my mom was volunteering to distribute the shoeboxes. She made me the last kid to receive a shoebox. So she said, you know, if we run out, sorry. <laughs> but thank God, I got my shoebox. I opened it. I don't know how to say it. I, I, there was no word for me to say, because I, I don't have this. Uh, I don't have these toys. I don't have these school supplies that was coming out from the boxes. And in this shoebox was a yellow yo-yo. Jaw-dropping moment, of course. No more playing with rocks and sticks. I have a yo-yo and those cars. And one of the scripture that came to my mind is, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We were all undeserving of the grace of God, but someone was full of grace, spend their resources, their money, their time. Somebody thought of me. Operation Christmas Child is a great organization. And after the service, or some of you might have gotten them before the service, but the boxes are here for you to pick up one. We are so grateful that you're here today. And I don't take it lightly that it's a privilege and also a blessing to be together. And we're so glad that you're here. If you're new or new or this is your first time in a while, or you would just love to have somebody contact you to help you figure out how to get connected, there are people in their booth um, after the service, or you can text this number and somebody will call you this week. But we love to help people get connected. Mickey, are you gonna come up here? Yeah. Good morning, everybody say doing? good morning to Mickey. Hey, good morning everybody. Are you uh, in would Denise? someone go out in the hall and tell them the service has started in here? <laughs> Thank you for being in here and for being on time. We really appreciate that. Matt, how you doing, man? Okay, you're getting better though, right? All right, good, good. Well, it's great to see you this morning, and uh, I just want to reflect with you for a moment. I want to challenge you. 2017... Uh, I visited every community group in Bentonville, uh, giving a challenge that uh, we could have a Fellowship Bentonville campus. And so we began to pray about that. You see there on our, our checklist, we began to pray about that. And then we built this campus. Mark told you about all the volunteers that we have. Uh, what was it? 1030? That was the, the list. Over a thousand volunteers each week that make every, everything happen. And that happens in all of our campuses and all in our, our congregations up and down the corridor. And so I have been there in those congregations over the last month since I shared with you that uh, we want to eliminate our debt. We want to get rid of the debt. And uh, our goal was to do that in five years because that's what happened in Fayetteville. 
We eliminated our debt, built the building within five years. And so our five years comes at the end of this year. And I'm just asking everyone to participate in this. And, uh, you know, it, it, it was such a joy to go through all these things, to respond to the vision and then pray and then build it and then have the opportunity to equip and release leaders. Guys like Seth stepped up and said, I'll go to Bentonville. I'll do that. Mark Schatzman, Hunter. All those, and there's so many of you serving so many different places, but that we have one task left, and that's to pay this off. And our elders were talking about this the other night. If everyone in our congregations up and down the corridor participated in this, we can get that done by the end of this year. We have about $3.8 million left. I think it was $4 million last time I talked to you, but it's about $3.8 million now. And so we can get this done. And so we're asking all of you, if you'll go to your giving page, on the website, go to fellowshipbentonville.org, go to the giving page, and the first thing that you're going to see at the top of the list is eliminate the debt. If everybody can do something uh, to participate in this, uh, then all of us can make this happen. So thank you for giving me the opportunity to share, Seth, and I uh, hope we can get this done. Beth? It's so great to be a part of such a generous group of people. I count it a privilege and so glad to have this building to meet in. Hey, parents, moms and dads, today's um, teaching in Ephesians is a pretty serious um, topic, and that we will be talking about several kinds of sin, sexual sin, and we just want you to be aware of that so you can make the decisions that's best for you and your family. Would you take a deep breath? I know, we know, all of us know, God is with us wherever we go. But this morning, I want us to start by inviting his presence to do his work. And I'm going to pray for us. Oh, Jesus, you are such an amazing, good God. We thank you for this place that we get to worship. We thank you for these people we get to worship with. And as we look at the colors, the oranges and the yellows and the bright reds of this season, it just reminds us how in control you are. And Jesus, we invite you to do your work in us as we sing, as we hear scripture, as we're taught, as we surrender to what you want to do in the light that you bring to us. Do your work. Thank you, Lord, that in so many ways you speak to us and let us know your presence. We are your grateful people in your precious name. Amen. Stand with me and let's worship together. You give life, you are love, you bring light to the darkness, you give hope and you restore every heart that is. Broken. 
scripture in. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me, not whoever just acknowledges that he is the light, who follows him, they will never walk in darkness, but they'll have the light of life, real life, true life. Let's, let's just take a moment to pray. I just invite you to close your eyes, maybe open your hands and just say, Lord Jesus, teach me to follow you. Part of that is giving ourselves over completely to him, exposing everything to the light of his grace, his kindness. So I invite you to do that this morning. We give you our hearts. We give you our attention this morning. Would you lead us? Would you guide us? Would you empower us?
rest in that. Oh, man, just the, the realization of his goodness and his kindness to us. That he is the light in the darkness, that he won't let us stay the same. And so in this moment, I want to invite you guys into this song. But reflecting on Jesus being the light of the world, coming into the darkness. Can we open up our hearts to him in this moment? Have him light up the darkest part. Jesus, have your way. Come. Can we do that? There's no darkness in your eyes There's no question in your mind God Almighty God of mercy There's no hiding There's no hiding from your face There's no striving in your grace, God of mercy. God Almighty. Come on, let this be our prayer, one voice. Let there be light. Yeah. Open the eyes of the blind. Pure. borders in your love. There's no borders in your love. No division in your heart. God of heaven. God of freedom. Come on, we declare it.
Let's proclaim the good news. Here we go. Good news embracing the poor. Comfort for others who mourn. For the brokenhearted. Sing louder. Release from prison and shame. Oppression turning to praise. For every captive. Come on. Become the light that shines in us. Yes. There's no darkness in your way to have your way. Lord, have your way. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Lord, I pray that you would uh, fill us with your spirit this morning. I feel the heaviness of, of your word in all the good ways and all the hard ways, God, knowing that truth comes from you. And just pray over this morning uh, that you would bless our time, that you would teach us from your word, that we would experience the fullness of what it means to, to know you and be known by you as we walk in light. We love you, Jesus. Amen. All right, Ephesians chapter five is where we're at. We've got 21 verses starting in verse one ahead of us today. If you are new or haven't been here in a while, this is week nine of a 12-week series as we walk through verse by verse uh, through the book of Ephesians. And so if you go all the way back to when Jesus died and uh, when he rose from the grave, when he ascended into heaven, the Holy Spirit came and, and dwelled believers and 
Uh, God actually inspired a few early apostles to pen some of the key texts for us to know of what it looks like to be the church and how we walk and kind of our, our core theology. And Ephesians is one of those books. And so the first six weeks, uh, we really hit on this identity in Christ. Uh, that was chapters one through three, where we really see kind of foundationally who we are as children of God. And once you see this pattern in Scripture once, you'll start to see it more. But there's a pattern of being coming before doing. And so God consistently gives us a foundation of who we are according to his promises before he asks us just to go do a bunch of stuff, right? And all of that stuff is going to overflow out of our identity in Christ. So that was the first six weeks. The last two weeks, we were in chapter four, and we saw that the first overflow of that identity in Christ was actually unity in Christ with the body of believers. And last week, Doug kind of entered us in just a little bit into what it looks like to walk with Jesus and to walk in Christ, and that's where we're going to see Paul really go uh, deep this morning. And so we are in chapter 5, and starting in verse 1, a really foundational verse for this whole section, because it says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. And if you were to take that first section without the second, it can feel kind of weighty. I mean, I think this is what a lot of believers deal with in following Jesus, is like, I have to imitate God? Like, I have to do all of these things right. I have to avoid all of these things. I have to have perfect wisdom in decisions, uh, every decision I make. And that's not exactly what is, is happening here. We actually need that second part because that can feel exhausting. And it's that being before doing. Even though you see physically this, this as beloved children is second, it's actually the thing pushing the identity of what it means to be an imitator of God. It's because we're beloved children. That's why we imitate our Father. That's why we spend time with Him. So this isn't a, hey, go do all these things. This is a, when you spend time with God the Father and see how loved and cared for and cherished you are, it's going to change your whole life. And you're going to want to imitate the things that you see. Imitation is the greatest form of flattery, right? Not that God needs to be flattered. He does not. But when we think about uh, imitation and mimicking, it's hard to find a greater natural imitation than within a family, especially with parents and their kids. My similarities, oh, by the way, I have to consistently remind y'all how incredible of an athlete I was growing up. So just want you to see that physique once again. My similarities to my father uh, do not stop with just looks. There are things that he does and, and things that he says and character traits that he has that I now have. Simple things, even like just coaching sports. My dad always coached me growing up, and so that's all I can think of when it comes to my kids' sports. Like, I want to coach. I want to be there with them. Um, I, I watched my dad fix everything in our house. We didn't call someone to come repair things, and so I just have it in me that I have to repair something myself if I can. I watched my parents be crazy generous under the table and behind the scenes, and no one knew it but me and my sister, and they kind of brought us into that. And it created in me this desire to be generous with what God has given us and this kind of secret kindness. And I'll tell you this, my, my biggest question isn't what have I picked up from my dad? It's what are my sons picking up from me? It's one of my greatest joys and my biggest fears. Uh, they're not going to have to try hard. They have my DNA and they spend a lot of time with me and they just pick stuff up. I had a moment this last Wednesday. Uh, my wife, Alex, leads a ninth grade cell group through Fellowship Student Ministries, FSM here. So she's gone every Wednesday night. So that means every Wednesday night I lead a cell group of three boys. And the four of us get to hang out. And Alex was leaving to go to cell group, 
and I don't know why I did this, but she's walking out. I'm like, boys, come here. I'm like, wave by, and we all wave by, and as soon as the door shuts, I key up the music, we rip our shirts off, and we just start dancing and having a dance party. And about 10 seconds in, it hits me like, is this a good idea? Because they're going to mimic this, and I've just taught them that when the parents leave, it's time to party, baby. And I'm having to reel that back in and have conversations with them and process, okay, we, we don't actually do that, but... In all the bad that they're picking up from me, because there's going to be a lot of things, I hope also they realize they have a father who loves them and a mother who loves them, and that they're in a home that is safe. Uh, it's safe to fail. It's safe to experience grace and growth. And I want that to be one of the things that is foundational for them as they grow. So when I think about this verse, how much more does our father love us? And not only that, but how much more is he worth imitating? than a broken example of a father here on earth. That doesn't mean that we act like we are God when we imitate. That doesn't mean we try to become God. It means we are secure in his home and in his family, and that identity changes everything about us. And it brings us life and joy in the ways that we live and imitate him. Now, Paul is going to basically lay out a couple of things of ways that we are to walk as new children. So as beloved children... What does it look like to walk? Uh, every child has to learn to walk. It doesn't come naturally. And so you learn to take steps. And Paul's laying some of these foundational things. And as a reminder of who he's writing to, remember the, the makeup of the people of God has changed. It used to be all Jews, and now Gentiles are brought in. They're no longer bound to the law and circumcisions and these other things. And so they're trying to figure out, well, what does the people of God look like now? Like, how are we supposed to act? And one of the natural conclusions would be, well, if Christ has come and died for our sins and taken the consequences and the wrath has been put on him, it's kind of just a free-for-all, right? Those consequences aren't there. So, like, we're not going to intentionally live sinful, but it's okay just to kind of do what we want. And Paul is going to squash that and say, no, 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 no. And I think he's already been doing that in these first couple of chapters. If you remember back to Ephesians 2, if you have no idea what this is, I can't explain it again, go back, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. But Paul has, has already told us that, like, remember the depths at which Christ went to bring us salvation, to bring us life, and to get us off this track of just being dead in our trespasses. So if this is true and he brings us into new life in the sanctification process, why in the world would we continue to live dead? Why would we continue to live like our old self and to live these habits and to live these different things? We're going to see some different things addressed, but that first thing that, that Paul says is that we are to walk in love. Now, it comes right after this identity statement of being children of God, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Now, if you stop after and walk in love, this is not that countercultural. I would say pretty much every organization, people group, movement would say that love is the key to a healthy society. The problem is most definitions of love are founded on the wrong thing. They're founded on ourselves and our own hearts. You probably heard to follow your heart. Something we're to do is to follow your heart wherever it may lead. But scripture says that the heart is deceitful above all else. And so when we look at this and we examine what is this love that we're being called into, it's important to remember that we're not being called to be God but to imitate God. And I have this Gospel Coalition article that I keep saved on my, my desktop, 
Uh, it's probably about a year old at this point, but I go back to it occasionally. And in it, the author is talking about the fastest growing religion in our world today. Any guesses? Kind of a trick question. It's the religion of self-worship. This religion of self. And he says, here are the six key tenets of what this religion worships and what makes it what it is. Your mind is the source and standard of truth. Your emotions are authoritative. You are sovereign. You are supreme. You are the standard of goodness, and you are the creator. You get to decide what is true and what is not true. And there's one thing in common with these, all six of these. Do you see it? It's pretty simple. It's you. It's that you are at the center of this world and of your world. And you might feel like this is a 21st century religion, and I would say in a lot of ways it is, but it goes way further back than the 21st century. We can go all the way through the history of our country. We can go all the way back to the New Testament. We can trace it all the way through the Old Testament. We can go back to the garden. Think about Adam and Eve. When they're being tempted for that first time with sin, what do you think some of the questions were that were going through their minds? Like, man, this thing looks good. If it looks good, like, I can have it, right? Where where, where does truth come from? I know God said this, but the serpent is saying this. Like, do I just make this feeling based off of what I feel or make this decision based off of what I feel? So you see these things playing out there, but let's back up even further. Let's go to the first fall, the fall of Satan, well before the fall of mankind. And Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 actually give us this glimpse into this, this angel who basically was full of pride and was dealing with this stuff. And he was saying things like, I will ascend to the heavens. I will set my throne on high. I will be God. And that's what I want. So this, this self-worship, this idolatry goes way back. So can I just give us a reminder that's pretty obvious, but it's always good to articulate it. You are not God, and I am not God. And we were never meant or created to be our own gods. We weren't created to be enamored by ourselves, to be fulfilled by ourselves, to worship ourselves. In fact, this, this article reminds me that we were made to be captivated by someone infinitely more interesting than ourselves and will never be fulfilled by ourselves. And so when you look at this text, we're not called to be God and to step in and have everything about us. In fact, it's the opposite. The love that we are called to walk in is this sacrificial love that Christ has laid out. It's not a selfish love, but a selfless one that looks for the good of others and looks for God's glory over our own good or our own glory. And so like a child taking their first steps and learning how to walk, God is saying, fix your eyes on me and walk in sacrificial love as I have walked. And so if that is what steps of sons and daughters look like, what's your step count at this week? Like, what's the old Fitbit say? How many, how many steps are you actually taking in this of loving selflessly those around us? Because as believers with our identity in Christ, as imitators of God, that's what he's called us to do, is to give our lives away for the sake of others. So we walk in love, but we also walk as children of light. Uh, this is going to get heavy, so let me just say that. You will probably hear me say that word a couple of times because I have felt it so much this morning, having taught the first service and being up here now. But when, when I get 21 verses, I have to pick where to spend time and where to spend weight. So we're going to stop right here in this section for an extended period of time. 
Paul is going to move from the, the unity of the church now to the purity of the church. And simply put, there are things of this world that are unfit for followers of Jesus. And we cannot get away from the weight of these four verses. Um, you see words like sexual immorality and impurity, crude joking, covetousness. And there's these heavy things that, that Paul is saying, there should be no hint of these things amongst the people of God. And it's not because God is some buzzkill, mean God, and he's saying, I don't want you to do those things. It's because he's the creator and designer, and he knows which things lead to life and which ones lead to darkness and destruction. So we're all friends here, right? So let's define sexual immorality. Doesn't that sound fun? Here we go. Any sexual engagement outside of God's design for sex, God's design being one man, one woman in the context of a committed covenant relationship called marriage. That's where our sexual organs are meant to be used in the way God created them. That's where our sexuality is meant to be expressed in the fullness in which he created. And unfortunately, things have gotten way outside of that and become skewed by sin. Notice the Greek word for sexual immorality here, porneia. I do not have to explain to you what English word we use that, that comes from that. But it's a good thing to remember that sex is a, an original and important part of God's kingdom movement on this earth. It was essential in seeing God's image displayed across the whole earth. If you go back to the beginning, the creation story, do you know what the first command given to Adam and Eve was? Is it to honor the Lord your God above all else? Or to not eat from this tree? Or to name these animals? No. It was to have sex. I love telling that to high school students because they're like, excuse me? <laughs> but when God created man and woman, they were naked and unashamed. And he looked at them, he blessed them, and he said, be fruitful and multiply. Take the image that I have given to you as my image bearers and take it across this whole and what was intended for good has been twisted and perverted in so many ways. And it was happening right there in the city of Ephesus on full display. So when I think about why sexual immorality is listed first and repeated a couple of times here, I think of a couple of things. One is the culture of Ephesus. Um, it was a sexually obsessed and destructive city. You had the Temple of Artemis. It was one of the seven wonders of the world. It was massive. And it was home to this multi-breasted fertility goddess, Artemis, or her Roman name or equivalent would be uh, Diana. There was cult prostitution happening at the temple. Uh, there was prostitution mixed with worship in order to gain some higher level of fertility. There was a seductive sexuality to worshiping this fake goddess. And things were happening that would make us even today go, are you kidding me? It was dark. And the people knew that. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if some of the people that Paul is writing to have lived in this. They've at least been around it, and they've seen it. And Paul is reminding them, these are not the ways of God's creation. This is not what he has designed for you to experience life on this earth. Temporary satisfaction and pleasure will never get you anywhere. And he has something way greater for us. And they shouldn't even be named among you, as the text says. And not only that, but we shouldn't become partners with them, as we'll see. So you've got the culture of Ephesus, but also think there's just the, the human condition of broken sexuality. Did you know that everyone in here struggles sexually? 
every single one of us, in some way, different levels, different ways. But the reason I know that is because when you go back to the original sin of mankind, what is the first sign of brokenness that we see in Adam and Eve? It's their sexuality. Because when they sin, they do two things. They hide and they cover themselves. Because something at that point that God had designed was broken. And so much more than just that was broken at the time. And so while we look at the sexual ethic around us in the world and say, hey, these are some of the things we need to avoid, we also have to acknowledge that we need to be very aware of the sexual ethic within us and within the church. Because I think our line of sin kind of moves over the years. And some things become kind of acceptable that maybe wouldn't have been and definitely aren't according to Scripture. Now, in this list, do you find it odd that he puts covetousness or greed, as some of your translations might say, with sexual immorality and impurity? At first I did. I was like, why is that there? And then here's why I think it's divinely placed. Sexual sin is often the most degrading form of greed. And it's craving someone else's body and intimacy for our own satisfaction. And that's why I think he has it listed here, along with filthiness, foolish talk, crude joking, other things that should just not be part of the people of God. So he's saying it's not just your actions, it's even your speech and your words, things that you're you're supposed to use your words for thanksgiving, as the text says, but instead it's being used for this. This is not how the people of God live. Now, how do we interpret the the weight and the heaviness of verse 5? Right after this last highlighted part, it says, the people who do this have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. It can't mean that any immoral decision that we make excludes us now from salvation, like our salvation is revoked. What he's hinting at here is that there is a different level of commitment with these people and an attachment to sin a refusal to get rid of the old self and to say, no, these are the things that satisfy my cravings. It's someone who's without repentance, committed to idolatry and sexual greed, refusing to give up that old lifestyle. And Paul says, there is a counter to this. This is not the way that we have to live. And there's joy to be found when we walk as children of the light. A couple of aspects I wanna bring forth with this is notice that it says we are to walk as light not in light. And there's a difference. To walk as light means we actually physically have the light of Christ, something in us that will will light up things as we go. And and we have the responsibility to expose sin and to expose darkness. Uh, This is another identity statement. You see that at the uh, end of verse 8, it says, you are now light in the Lord, therefore walk as children of the light. It flows out of that. But there's an element to us having the Spirit of God that we expose sin around us. Some of that is going to come in just the contrasting ways that we live, and other times we'll engage verbally and process hard things with people. And I think that can only be done by cultivating an intimate relationship with Jesus and watching how he lives out grace and truth and doing that together in community. So if I put myself in, back in Ephesus and I see one of my brothers or sisters or friends walking towards the temple of Artemis, I'm screaming, I'm yelling, do not go there. That will lead to destruction. And then there are going to be other times when I'm interacting with people who are living in sin where there's going to be this relational plotting over time where we build life and trust together and we open God's word together and process hard things. And we have to learn to do that as we walk 
with Jesus. So we're called to live as light and to expose sin around us. But number two, I would say, you can't live as light if you're not living in the light yourself. Some of you, if you've been around fellowship uh, before we even launched Bentonville, you might recognize uh, this thing. This is one of mine and Alex's memorial stones that we keep in a jar on our mantle uh, just to remind us of some of the history of our family and God's faithfulness. And I'll explain what it is. In 2017, we were renovating a house here in Bentonville to move into, and smokers had lived in it. We were doing a small addition, so we pretty much gutted it, and we had to change out the whole HVAC system in the process. And so after about seven months, we finally got the house done. We were moving into it. We hadn't cranked the AC up yet because it was in March and we hadn't needed it, but by the end of March, it was getting hot. And so we turned the AC on, and it didn't work. And I was so sad and frustrated. So I called uh, one of my friends and coworkers who had done the system. He, he may even be here, Bill McSpad, and I was like, Bill, I hope you messed it up. That way I don't have to pay for it. But something's wrong. Uh, can you come help me figure out what it is? He's like, okay. So he comes in, and he does all the pressure testing and everything. He goes, all right, you have a hole in your pipe, and it's somewhere in this wall. I've isolated it to this area. And this wall was in our closet, and our closet was beautiful. It was done. Mud, texture, uh, paint. I had done all the trim. I had built all the closet shelving, all the rods for the clothes. Everything was already stored in there. It was gorgeous. And it killed me to take a drywall knife and just cut a hole. I may have even cried. Just to cut a hole in this wall, in our closet. And I did, and I found the pipe, but no hole. I'm like, where is this? So then I have to cut a second hole. And when I cut this one, I reached my arm up in as far as I could, and literally at the very top, I felt it. And there was a nail that had come in from the siding, and it actually punctured this pipe. And it was preventing our whole house from being cooled. And the only way to repair it was to rip out my beautiful wall, to take off my shelving so that he could have access to it, to cut out that broken piece of pipe with the little bitty hole in it, and to solder a new one in. And Y'all, there's scars. You can see it on the pipe. I'm not a drywall guy. You can definitely see it on the drywall of where I had to cut into it. But our system works. And I could not make up a better picture of what God did in my life in regards to hidden sexual sin. For years, I was addicted to pornography and, I did, and other sexual sins and just did not want to talk about it with anyone. I fought and fought and fought and said, I will conquer this. I don't have to tell anyone. No one is going to know. And it couldn't be seen. People didn't know. But I knew that there was something behind that wall that was broken. And the only way that it was ever going to be fixed was to cut out that wall. And y'all, my wall was beautiful. My life was beautiful. Like I had it all together. People would have never known that something was deep and broken inside of me. I knew, and it wasn't functioning. And I had to shine light on that sin and allow God to take it out to replace it with something better. And I'll tell you this, I'll take a scar that people can see over a, an open wound that's hidden any day of the week. And I wouldn't have known that in the moment. But now on this side of it, I've experienced it. And when I think about the future of Fellowship Bentonville, I don't get that nervous that we're going to go heretical. 
that you're going to hear us teaching all this heresy or go hyper-conservative, hyper-progressive, whatever end of the spectrum might scare you. But this, this scares me. Because I know in a room this size, there's going to be deep sexual sin and deep hidden sin outside of sexual sin within many of us. And it eats us away, and we think we can hide it and push it away. And I hope even the mention of this this morning, you feel, if that's you, not not the Spirit of God pushing you into the light and saying, go, but actually walking with you and saying the only way to find joy and true life is to actually live in light and to live as light. This isn't shame. This isn't I'm holier than you. I'm telling y'all, there's no way you're any worse than I am. This is a, I have experienced the depths of darkness and hidden sin, and I am a new man today because of living in light, and I want to invite every single person in here that's feeling that into that light. You may be wondering, well, how in the world would I do that? I would hope that our small groups are a safe place to confess and to share, but I also acknowledge that especially with sexual sin, a lot of times it's best done with a trusted small group of people of the same gender, and so I want to bring one resource in front of you, and it's called a step study. Uh, It's through Celebrate Recovery, which is a part of fellowship. I went through a very similar program that was key to my recovery process. Uh, But it's a way to get around people who are also struggling with things and to put stuff in the light so that you can begin that healing through revealing. And so I'm going to give you an email address. I don't want you to have to take a picture or anything like that. It's real simple. You can remember it. CR, which stands for Celebrate Recovery, at fellowshipnwa.org. CR at fellowshipnwa.org. Email Ask for information about step studies, and we would love to help that healing process. Told you this was heavy, right? It's a lot easier to prep this when I'm not staring at people. Um, we've, we've focused on our own sexual immorality and sins, which I really do think this passage is hitting at and saying that shouldn't be a part of us. But I also want to acknowledge another group of people for a minute that there, there are some of you who have been victims of sexual immorality, whether it be abuse or Uh, pornography leading to divorce or affairs or whatever it may be. Children have to experience the fallout of that. One, there is grace and redemption for those who've committed that sin, but also for you, if you're experiencing that, having done nothing wrong and feeling like you're in the darkness, we want you to know that our church is a safe place for you to confess those things. And confess doesn't mean that you're confessing that you've done something wrong. It means to agree and to put things into light. And we want to help be part of that process of healing for you. And so I would encourage you to plug into a small group. Come talk to one of us. Ask for prayer. We want this to be a place where all things can be put into the light so that we can walk with Jesus together. I got to breathe for a second. We're called to walk in love. called to walk as light. And that means us being in the light as well. And then there's this third one that Paul keys in on. We're called to walk as wise, to walk in wisdom, because not everything is going to be as black and white as sexual immorality is. And Paul's going to list another list. There's so many lists in this chapter. It was, it, he did it, not me, so don't hate me for it. He lists four things, four contrasts, that we are to walk not as unwise, but as wise. And to, to do that, you're going to need to understand a few things. Make the best use of your time. Your time is not unlimited here on this earth. It is very limited. You should be seeking to understand what the will of God is. That's what we're following. That's who we're following is what would, what would the ways of the Lord be in this situation? 
And then ultimately, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, this, this sensual sin, but instead be filled with the Spirit. So you've got these four contrasts. And in study prep, I was feeling okay at this point, and then I got to 18, and I'm like, sex and alcohol? What in the world? Why is this here? Um, let's understand a, a little bit uh, of context here, okay? Paul's calling us to walk as wise, and he lists these other things, but he does contrast being drunk on wine in contrast with being filled with the Spirit. Why would he do that? There's one similarity that I can see between the two, and that is that you are under the influence of something or someone else. But really, it's the contrast that that really pops uh, to me. Drunkenness leads to a loss of self-control. Um, if, you, if you look at what it means to be filled with the Spirit and you look at the fruits of the Spirit in Scripture, what is the last sign of being filled with the Spirit, the last fruit of the Spirit? You memorized this song as a kid. It's self-control. So to be under the influence of the Spirit, to be filled with the Spirit, doesn't mean that you lose yourself in self-control. It means you actually find it to the highest ability possible. Uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones was both a physician and a pastor, so he has a very unique take on this comparison. And he says that alcohol at its core, from a medical terminology standpoint, is a depressant, not a stimulant. So stimulants work to activate the central nervous system. You might call those uppers. You may have heard that. Uh, Depressants actually work to quiet the central nervous system. Those would be downers. He says, if I had to categorize the Holy Spirit in a textbook of pharmacology, I would put him under the stimulants. And what he's saying there is that excessive alcohol actually dehumanizes us, but being full with the Spirit heightens the imago Dei within us, the image of God that we were created to be, and allows us to have clarity to actually see the world as it is and to know how to walk as children of God. So Hunter, are you calling the Holy Spirit a drug? No, don't email me, okay? What I'm saying is that the Holy Spirit gives clarity and wisdom to be able to see things that we can't see on our own. So are you saying that we should never drink alcohol? No, that's not what the text says. Okay then, so what is fellowship's take on alcohol? Y'all are asking a lot of questions this morning. So, (coughs) excuse me. Here's what I would say. I'm going to give you two words of what we would want you to know. And they actually come straight from this text. Wisdom and moderation. We see both. Wisdom you see very clearly. Notice that the mention of alcohol is in this section of wisdom and unwisdom, not in a section of light and darkness. And so we have to be wise in how we treat it, but the biggest wisdom piece is going to be moderation. Uh, The command here is to not get drunk, not to get to a point where you actually lose your cognitive ability and go to an altered state of mind. So a few words on how we would ask that you guys live this out, uh, moderation and wisdom. Even in moderation, we should never be dependent on alcohol. At all times, we should be able to set it aside and go, I don't need this tonight. This isn't part of who I am. We also have to be sensitive to alcohol abuse in other people's lives, whether that was in their own life or maybe in their family, and it's affected the way that they view it and interact with it. We never want our freedom to jeopardize someone else's walk at all. And then if you're in a community group, or leading a community group, if you're studying God's word and praying together, we would ask you to set it aside for the evening. And then outside of that, use a lot of caution and a lot of wisdom 
because we can't assume that we know everyone's story, even if they've shared their story. We come from different backgrounds, different places, and so we have to ask who is present. Uh, will this hurt or enhance ministry opportunities? But in all things, moderation, and you are going to have to work that out as an individual in your own heart or if you're married in your marriage, just like Alex and I have had to. But alcohol isn't the focus here. It is mentioned, so we wanted to bring it up. But the focus is, in wisdom, we should be filled with the Spirit of God. And this is a daily filling, a daily decision that we make every single day. I was praying it before I came up here. Like, Lord, I need it this morning. Fill me with your spirit as we speak and open your word. The kind of walk, it's important to remember, that Paul is describing here is absolutely impossible on your own effort. Just can't do it. But when we know that we're beloved children of God, when we submit in that relationship to imitate him, when we learn to walk in light, man, there is joy and life to be found. And so what does it look like? How do you know if you're walking in the spirit? Guess what? Paul gives us another list. He says, these are the things that are going to be overflowing out of you as he finishes this section. If you're walking with me, watch and you're going to see these things. You're going to be addressing each other with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, speaking truth. That's why we do a lot of the repetition in here, where we say things to each other and over each other. We want to speak the truths of God in unity. We want to sing and make melody to our heart, or to the Lord with our hearts. Give thanks to use the gifts that God has given us to actually give thanks to him. Not with filthy talk and crude joking, the other things he's listed, but having the spirit overflow out of us so that our words breathe life. And then ultimately submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, which is going to be the next two weeks as he dives into that a little bit more. But the way that I would summarize this is that when we as a body of believers submit in relationship to Jesus and walk full of the spirit, we're going to be a humble, unified, thankful body of worshipers. And for so many of us, that is what I see. And it's an overflow of the spirit of God working in you and working in me. And scripture has a way of teaching us that the walk, our walk with Jesus is individual, but it's also in the midst of people. So even the people next to you and behind you, as you kind of side glance, this is what they're called to as we do this together. So I was uh, joking with Seth. Usually we, we meet with the worship team kind of week of to talk through how do we want to land a service? How, how do we want to end a service? Like where does the text actually take us? Sometimes that is a really hard answer because I'm looking at a text, I'm going, I don't know how we, like, I don't know what we do with this and where we go. And then you get Ephesians 5, which literally says, hey, y'all should sing together. And so we were looking at it and I was like, all right, crazy thought. What should we do? Let's sing together. As a humble, unified body of worship, worshipers that is thankful as we, as we live life in the Spirit and we're filled with the Spirit and experience the joy that He brings us, let's lift that up vocally. And I get the heaviness of this. Some of you aren't there. Some of you are going, man, I got a lot of stuff to work out. I would challenge you to lay that before the Lord even this morning. Knowing you're committed to taking that to someone else and you're going to walk in love, you're going to walk as light, you're going to walk in wisdom. But right now, as a unified body of believers, will y'all stand so that we can worship our Lord together?
to fulfill the law and prophets to a virgin came the word from a throne of endless glory to a cradle in the dirt praise the father praise the son praise the chosen people. We're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. 
we are God's special possession. That you and I, that we may declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once we were not a people, but now we are the people of God. Once we had not received mercy, but now we have. So let's remind ourselves of that story, this gospel story. Let's sing it out together as a church family. How great the chasm that lay between us. How high the mountain I could not climb. In desperation, I turned to heaven and spoke your Then through the darkness, your loving kindness tore through the shadows of my soul. The work is finished, the end is written. Jesus Christ, my in that then came the
Hallelujah. Jesus is our living hope. I needed to be reminded of that today. For those of you that have suffered loss in the last couple years or have just had a grief that you need help carrying, the Grief Share is going to offer a special class um, on November the 8th. You can look online and it will give you all the details, but it's invited, you are invited, all of us are invited to attend. You are light bearers of a great and gracious God. As we gather here, we're gathered so that we can hear truth, be reminded of truth, but then we are invited to scatter scattered to all parts of Northwest Arkansas and live out the living hope, the grace, the peace, the healing and forgiveness that we've had experienced. There are so many who need to hear and know that peace. So you, as we leave this morning, would you remember to shine your light bright and bring hope to those that need it? Thank you for being with us this morning. We'll see you next week.